our hearts to hear the sermon with an Old Testament scripture reading from Zechariah chapter 3. Hear God's word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Let's pray. O God, you declare your almighty power, chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Oh Lord, prepare our hearts to hear and accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds. That as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our sermon text tonight comes from Luke chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to that chapter and follow along as I read aloud from God's Word. The sermon text is also printed in your order of worship for your convenience. I invite those of you who are willing and able to stand as I read from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. The Word of God reads, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I've asked twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. 
May God add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 2008, I spent some time in Baghdad, Iraq, working as a military consultant. And this was years after Saddam Hussein's government had been toppled, and a number of his palaces had been repurposed. And the U.S. military was using them at this time for office space. And while I was there, I attended a few meetings in some of these palaces, and I was really struck by how beautiful they were. The disparity between the beauty of these palaces and the living conditions of the average Iraqi was really shocking. And to me, what highlighted this disparity most were several beautiful and intricate domes in the ceilings of some of these palaces, and in one palace in particular. The beauty of the colors and the elaborate patterns contrasted sharply with the shades of dusty brown and the scenes of poverty so common throughout Iraq. One day, I had an opportunity to help a friend of mine install fiber optic cable in one of the palaces in an area near what I considered was the most beautiful dome of them all. As you can imagine, I was excited to have an opportunity to see something so beautiful from up close. And I expected to be even more impressed by the beauty and artistry of the dome when I got a closer look at it. But what I ended up seeing was not what I expected. The dome, which from below had appeared to be the work of a master artist, was in fact something entirely different. From up close, it appeared to be made of some type of cheap, thin plastic. And from within the crawl space above the ceiling, I could see that the dome was not, in fact, a solid piece of artwork, but instead was held together by a mishmash of rusty metal supports. Apparently, Saddam had been concerned with external appearances, and he had achieved the goal of making something look very fine and beautiful from a distance. But how it looked from the outside was deceiving. From up close, from inside, I was able to see the dome as it really was. You see, sometimes things look really wonderful and beautiful and fine, but externals do not always tell us the whole story. I mention this tonight because we're going to look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And as we look at this parable, Jesus is going to give us an up-close and personal look at the hearts of two men. We get to see inside the dome, so to speak, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and we get to see if the external appearances of these two men match their hearts. There will be three main sections to my sermon tonight. First, I'll make some comments about the audience and the introduction to the parable. Next, I'll discuss the prayers of the Pharisee and the tax collector and their respective outcomes. And finally, we'll consider how we might examine our own lives and hearts in light of this parable. Luke introduces this parable by giving us a few details about Jesus's audience. Now, this is important because as Jesus tells this story, he's addressing the spiritual needs of a particular group. Now, Luke doesn't identify this group by name, but he does tell us that these people were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. And, as a result of their self-righteous pride, they looked down on others. The ESV says that they treated others with contempt. So they thought they were better than others, and their actions showed it. 
Interestingly, the word Luke uses implies that they actually treated others as if they had no value, as if they had no worth. So this is Jesus's audience, people who looked at themselves and their own lives as the standard for righteousness and who showed by their actions that others were essentially worthless. I mentioned that we don't know the specific audience, but there are some scholars who think that the audience is made up of Pharisees. Now, this could be the case, but I tend to think Jesus's audience here is more generalized, probably even includes some of his own followers. But in the end, not knowing the specifics about the audience really doesn't change anything for us. We may not know who exactly Jesus was addressing, but we do know the exact condition of their hearts which is really the most important thing for us to know. But given the information we have, I think we can make some informed guesses about these people. For one, their lives were probably pretty good looking from the outside. I bet they were very moral people. They probably did all the right things and kept from doing all the wrong things. They associated with the right people and in the right places, and they closely followed the law. And from the outside, these people looked great. But inside, there was a problem. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Whoever these people were, Jesus saw right into their souls. He knew them better than they knew themselves. He understood the sinfulness and self-deception of the human heart, and he addressed the self-deceived hearts of these particular people with a tailor-made parable. Now, I think sometimes we can hear a parable like this and think to ourselves that Jesus is just condemning the Pharisees again or that he's just shaming a bunch of self-righteous people. But I really want you to see the great love of Jesus here. He's showing his audience with a picture painted in words where they're going wrong, and he didn't have to do that. He could have simply left them to the destruction of their own devices, but he didn't. Remember, these people had been trusting in themselves and they thought that they were okay. They actually thought that they were righteous on their own. But Jesus had compassion on them and he took the time to show them the truth. He held up a spiritual mirror for them so they could see their actual state of their souls before God. And so they could turn in repentance, humble themselves and be saved. So please, as we look at this parable, don't fail to see Jesus' love. Don't don't miss out on his love tonight. The two main characters in this parable are a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, when you and I hear about Pharisees, when we read about Pharisees, our first thought is that they're going to be the negative example. They're going to be the bad guy. But that would not have been the case with Jesus' audience, with the people listening to to him here. The Pharisees were very well-liked, and they were well-respected. For the most part, they were a lay movement, so they weren't mainly priests. And they were a different group from the scribes, who were the more official teachers of the law, even though Jesus often addresses them both at the same time. But again, for the most part, Pharisees were highly respected. They were admired. And they were very strict about keeping the Mosaic Law. And they also put a lot of importance on following oral tradition. In fact, they were so concerned with keeping the law that they essentially built a fence around the law to guard against any possible infringement. Now, remember, at this point in time, Judea was a Roman province and the Jews were being ruled by a pagan empire. 
And so the basic rationale of the Pharisees was this. If people would just do the right thing, if people would just act a certain way, God will bless our nation again and things will be the way they should be. Now, this is an oversimplification, of course, but I think it captures the basic essence of how they thought. And I also think it's fair to say that the Pharisees were more concerned with a person's behavior than they were with the condition of a person's heart before God. So they were concerned mainly with externals. But still, the vast majority of Jewish people looked up to them as protectors of Judaism. You and I hear Pharisee, and our first thought is villain. But the people in Jesus' audience would have heard Pharisee and thought hero. And this is especially true when we consider the other character in the story, the tax collector. While Pharisees were respected and admired, tax collectors were hated. They were considered notorious for their dishonesty. Not only did they collect taxes on behalf of the occupying pagan rulers, but they were allowed to collect more than was required and to keep this excess for themselves. So they worked for the occupiers of Jewish lands, and they were thieves. They were actually hated so much that later Jewish writings suggest that any house a tax collector so much as stepped inside should be considered unclean. The contrast between these two men could not have been more extreme. One man is highly respected, the other hated. One man is highly devout, the other considered a traitor to Judaism. One influential in society, the other an outcast of society. If this were an old cowboy movie, the tax collector would have been dressed head to toe in black. Absolutely no one would have expected or even wanted a good outcome for him. If there was a villain in the minds of Jesus' audience here, the tax collector was most certainly it, not the Pharisee. And Jesus says that both of these men went up into the temple to pray. Jesus talks about the Pharisee and his prayer first. And he begins by describing this man's physical posture. Jesus notes the Pharisee was standing as he prayed. And while this might sound a little strange to you and I, standing was a normal posture for prayer at this time. So we really shouldn't read too much into that. But some of Luke's words about the Pharisee's posture can be a little tricky. The SV says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. An alternate translation, which some of you might have footnoted in your Bibles, is that the Pharisee was standing and praying to himself. And wherever this man was standing in relation to others in the temple, the content of his prayer is about to make very clear where his focus is. He starts his prayer by addressing God in thanksgiving, but it's an odd kind of thanksgiving. He thanks God that he's not like other people. And if the start to his prayer seems like a prideful comment about his own superiority, it's about to get a lot worse. He next qualifies for God. He explains to God exactly what sorts of people he's thankful not to be like, and he identifies them by their sins. First, He's thankful that he's not like extortioners. And the word here can also mean robbers or thieves. So he's thankful that he's not like people who violate the Eighth Commandment. And he's also thankful that he's not like adulterers who violate the Seventh Commandment. And he's thankful that he's not like the unjust. Which just refers to people who are generally unrighteous and lawless. 
It's kind of a catch-all word for wrongdoers. So basically, the Pharisee is thankful that he's not like sinners. Even in this man's prayer, he's looking down on others. Now, I want to take a minute and clarify something here. There's nothing wrong with being thankful that the Lord has kept you from sin. Actually, there would be something wrong if you weren't thankful that the Lord had kept you from sin. So we should be thankful if we don't steal. We should be thankful if we don't commit adultery. We should be thankful if we don't disregard God's law. Being thankful for these things is good, and it's right to thank God for this in our prayers, but that's not what the Pharisee's doing here. Instead, the Pharisee's prayer shows pride in what he thinks is his own innate goodness and his own performance rather than showing true thankfulness for God's providence and keeping him from sin. The Pharisee truly thinks he's better than other people, which becomes even clearer as he singles out the tax collector in his prayer, thanking God that he is not like this man in particular. The Pharisee's prayer maintains its self-exalting course as he recounts all the ways he continually exceeds God's requirements. For example, he fasts twice a week. But God only required his people to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so the Pharisee does so much better. He doesn't fast once a year. Twice a year, he fasts 104 times a year. And he tithes on absolutely everything, everything. Not just on seeds or fruits or herds or flocks. Not just on what's required, but on everything. And not just on what he earns either, but, but on everything he purchases, just in case it hadn't been properly tithed on before. The Pharisee here is good and he knows it. He's not like other men. And he's especially not like that tax collector over there praying by himself. And so... He has no need to repent. He has no need to ask for forgiveness. He's kept God's law. No, no, he hasn't kept. He's exceeded. He's built a fence around the law, and he hasn't even come close to breaking a commandment. Or so he thought. When I look at the Pharisee's prayer, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Luke 11, where he says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Paying attention to the letter of the law, even going beyond it while completely missing its intent. And all the while failing to love both God and neighbor. The heart of the Pharisee was turned inward. He was focused on himself and his own works. He even seems to attribute God's own grace to his goodness. He had a wrong understanding of who he actually was before God. Like Jesus' audience, the Pharisee was trusting in his own righteousness and despising others. The Pharisee seems a little bit like my dome in Baghdad. Looks great from the outside, doesn't he? Has everybody fooled. But inside... It's a different story altogether. Matthew 23, Jesus says that Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. They outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
When we read later in the parable and find out that the Pharisee was not justified before God, we aren't surprised. But the scary thing is this. The Pharisee was completely oblivious. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. He trusted in works. And when he left the temple, I'm quite sure that he thought mistakenly that he was right before God. As J.C. Ryle notes, no state of soul can be conceived so dangerous as that of the Pharisee. Never are men's bodies in such desperate plight as when mortification and insensibility set in. Never are men's hearts in such a hopeless condition as when they are not sensible of their own sins. The Pharisee was not sensible of his own sin. He trusted in a righteousness of his own. A righteousness that simply did not exist. Jesus next talks about the tax collector and his prayer. And again, he starts by including some details about this man's posture. Like the Pharisee, the tax collector was standing, but Jesus says that he was standing far away. And presumably, he was standing far away from the Pharisee, but probably far away from everyone else also. As the scene develops in our minds, we can almost sense the shame that this man felt as he comes into the temple to pray. And he was under no pretense that he was wanted or liked by the Pharisee or by anyone else. He was a sinner and he knew it. I expect that this man was painfully aware of being looked at with disdain because, <clears throat> and because it was typical to pray out loud. Maybe... Even though he was standing far away, just maybe he heard the Pharisee's prayer, as he mentioned him in particular. Now perhaps such speculation is unwarranted, but we should get the picture that this man was very much aware of what others thought of him. And so he stood far away. But more importantly, the man was painfully aware of his place before God. He understood the separation from God caused by his sins. And he was filled with guilt and shame and remorse. Jesus says that the tax collector couldn't even bring himself to raise his eyes up toward heaven. He was humiliated by his own sinfulness. He wasn't even able to look up as he prayed. The tax collector's downcast gaze brings to mind Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9 after he heard about all the unlawful marriages in Jerusalem. Not only is this man's gaze cast downward, but he's also beating on his chest. And while this isn't apparent, in English, this beating on his chest was a repeated action. So here we have a picture of a man completely distraught over his own sin. A man unable to look up. A man beating, beating repeatedly on his chest. A man aware that he is not holy and that God is. A man who stands utterly convinced of his own unrighteousness and who realizes his complete inability to save himself. Brothers and sisters, this is not a proud man. This is a broken man. This is a man who knows that he stands guilty before a holy God. A man who's despairing over his sin. What a contrast. What a contrast to the Pharisee. So, What does this broken, guilty, desperate man pray? Where's his focus? Well, his focus isn't outward. He doesn't look over at the Pharisee and ask God to be like him. And he doesn't look around and see someone else and thank God that at least he's not as bad as that person. 
Instead, he confesses to God that he is the sinner. And this also doesn't come through clearly in the ESV, but the tax collector is so convinced of his own sinfulness that he actually calls himself the sinner. He's so aware of his own failures before God that no one else's righteousness or lack of righteousness even comes to mind. John Owen, one of my favorite Puritans, says this about the tax collector. In brief, he declares himself guilty before God and his mouth is stopped as unto any apology or excuse. And his prayer is a sincere application of his soul unto sovereign grace and mercy for deliverance out of the condition wherein he was by reason of the guilt of sin. And so the tax collector, sensing his own depravity with a painful clarity, cries out to God for mercy. The word translated as, mercy, as be merciful actually has some nuance that doesn't quite come through in English. The Greek word here is associated with the concept of atonement for sins through the shedding of blood. It's related to a word that's often translated as mercy seat or place of propitiation, which the Old Testament refers to, which in the Old Testament refers to the cover on the Ark of the Covenant, where blood from the sacrifice would be sprinkled on the Day of Atonement, and which Paul also uses in Romans 3.25 to refer to Jesus. But the exact word here which Luke uses, is found only in one other place in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where it refers to Jesus, our great high priest, making propitiation for the sins of the people. So what the tax collector is actually asking for is much more profound than mercy in some general sense. What he's really asking is that God be mercy seated to him, that God be propitious toward him, that God atone for his sins and forgive him because this man realized he was unable to do this himself. After all, he was the sinner. And his plea was one of humility and faith that God alone could and would provide atonement and forgiveness and justification even for the likes of him. And guess what? God was merciful. God did provide atonement and forgiveness and justification. Jesus tells us that this man left the temple justified, the humble, repentant sinner, the tax collector, the villain, went home forgiving, forgiven and righteous in God's sight, while the proud man, the self-righteous Pharisee, went home just as unforgiven and condemned as when he walked in. Jesus closes the parable by telling his audience that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee exalted himself before God and men. He relied on himself and his works for a right standing with God, and he remained condemned. The tax collector, on the other hand, humbled himself in repentance before God, asking in faith that God would be merciful that God would atone for his sins, that God would forgive him. And he was forgiven and granted a right standing before God and left the temple justified. Such an outcome would have completely shocked Jesus' audience. They would have expected the Pharisee to be justified, not the tax collector. And I think it's only not a shock to us because we're so familiar with the story. 
we take it for granted. We're not shocked because we've heard it so often. But it's still shocking if you really think about it. I mean, what kinds of things are exalted in the world today? The powerful? Wealthy? The influential? We could go on and on, but God's kingdom is not like the rest of the world. In God's kingdom, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Such a reversal is a common theme in Luke's gospel, and over the past months, we've talked about it almost every week. We see it in Luke chapter 1, for example, where Mary sings her song of praise to God, who has shown strength with his arm, who has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, who has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, who has filled the hungry with good things, and who has sent the rich away empty. We can see it in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus explains to the synagogue in Nazareth that he brings good news to the poor, liberty to captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and that he proclaims jubilee to God's people. We see it in the Beatitudes of Luke 6, where Jesus tells us that the poor and the hungry and the weeping and those hated for his sake are the ones who are truly blessed. We see it in the parables of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son and the rich man and Lazarus. And we see it here again tonight over and over and over again. Luke highlights Jesus teaching that the kingdom of God is not like what we would expect. And it's not just in Luke's gospel either. This is a theme repeated over and over repeatedly throughout God's word in both Old and New Testaments. The self-exalting and proud will be brought low, but the one who humbles himself, herself, before God will be exalted. As we consider how to apply this parable, I want each of us to look honestly at our own hearts. After all, I think some of the people Jesus was addressing here were probably his own followers. And this parable is recorded in God's word, so he is addressing us here. I know we all really want to identify with the tax collector in his prayer, but how often do we fail to see ourselves as the sinner? And we want to reject any thought that we could be like the Pharisee, but how often do we look on our own actions with pride or start to trust in our own works or judge others against our performance. The truth is that we have to constantly guard against falling into a prideful, self-righteous frame of mind. There's one standard of righteousness, and it's not me, and it's not you, and God doesn't grade us on a curve. The truth is that none of us measure up, which is why we so desperately need Jesus. We've been forgiven much, more than we can possibly imagine, and so we must love much. There's no room for pride in a follower of Jesus Christ. There's no room for boasting about ourselves. If we boast, like Paul says, let our only boast be in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. While there are hard things to think about in this parable, and we should think about them, there's also wonderful news here. The whole parable points us to Jesus and the forgiveness available in him for sinners like you and I. The mercy which the tax collector 
so desperately pleads for and which God so graciously gives him is available in Jesus Christ. And the very words used in this request for mercy point us back to the Old Testament, point us back to the sacrificial system, which in turn points us forward to the one true sacrifice made by Jesus Christ on the cross for sins. The good news is that God can be propitious toward us because Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. God can be merciful to us because Jesus became the true mercy seat. He is the true place where atonement for our sins was made. And we can be exalted in salvation in God's kingdom because Jesus Christ, our King, became humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. And after he took the penalty for our sins upon himself, after he became the ultimate symbol of humility, God raised him from the dead and highly exalted him above every name. Brothers and sisters, this parable is really about the gospel. No matter how good we think we are or how hard we try, we all fall short of the glory of God and we can never earn favor through works. Trusting in ourselves and our works will only result in condemnation. But the good news is that if you cry out to God for mercy over your sins, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son, you will receive forgiveness and be justified. And if this is you, brother, if this is you, sister, then be assured of your salvation. Be encouraged. Be confident in the promises of our God and Jesus Christ. But if you're here tonight... And you feel a bit like the tax collector when he walked into the temple. If you feel like you don't belong. If you feel like you're far from God and you feel the guilt and weight of condemnation because of your sins. If this is you, I want you to know that God's gracious offer of salvation, his offer of justification is open to you. Question 33 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains justification like this. Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Understand that you, like the tax collector in this parable, can leave here tonight justified before God. You can leave pardoned from your sin and righteous in his sight but only by trusting in the finished work of Jesus, his son. Only by humbling yourself before God and crying out for mercy and taking hold by faith of the mercy offered to you in Jesus. Trusting in anything other than Jesus can never save, but no one who puts their faith or puts their trust in Jesus Christ will ever be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May we all continually Turn in humble repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, the one who truly humbled himself and who God has most highly exalted forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly and we praise you and we thank you for your great mercy towards sinners like us. We thank you that in Jesus you have been merciful to all those who in humble repentance and faith have cried out to you for mercy. We thank you for reminding us tonight through this parable that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and not through works. We thank you for reminding us that there is no place in pride for pride in our hearts, nor any room to boast. 
unless we are to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus. We confess that all too often we are proud and too often we become concerned with externals and we begin to trust our own actions. Too often we compare ourselves with others and begin to see our own behavior as the standard for righteousness. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us for exalting ourselves. Forgive us for forgetting that we have no righteousness of our own, but only the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us by your wonderful grace and received by faith. I ask that the truths of your word, Father, would take deep root in our hearts and that we would continually be reminded of the dangers of pride and self-righteousness. I ask that when we begin to think in these ways that you would quickly convict us of our sins and bring us to humble repentance and a renewed and strengthened faith in Jesus our Lord. And I ask, Father, that if there are any here tonight who are trusting in themselves rather than in your Son, that you would open the eyes of their hearts to the truth of the gospel, that you would grant them repentance unto life and faith in Jesus your Son. I ask, Father, that there would be none here tonight who return home like the Pharisee, but that all would leave here righteous in your sight based on the perfect righteousness of your Son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.